Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, I'll give you my early preference for the Rockets number two pick in the draft. And thankfully, that's actually going to happen. <laughs> Plus, the Astros got punked by their former leader. We look at what went wrong and some big picture baseball issues. Plenty to talk about. With my partner, my co-host, my regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, that draft lottery, it was even more nerve-wracking than I thought. My heart was racing with each team that was unveiled. How were you feeling as that was all happening? <laughs> yeah, I like the reference you made when you, I, I listened to your podcast uh, interview with Gerald Sanchez from the Sugarland Skeeters. I wish I had been able to make that conversation. Gerald's a great guy and I uh, really enjoyed listening to him, watching him on the Skeeters broadcast. But I, I liked what you said to him because you, you referred to the lottery. You said you felt like it was a Nolan Ryan fastball coming at your head. You were so nervous. <laughs> yeah, Great analogy. I, I think Rothel Stone had it right. He wouldn't even watch it. He he was so nervous he couldn't even watch it. And you're talking about your your general manager couldn't even watch. That's how big this was, Robert. But, boy, what a sigh of relief. I mean, I, I guess Hakeem – he did his job, right? He provided the luck we needed. I mean, what can you say? I mean, Elijah Wan hits the fallaway jumper when it mattered, just like always. Only fitting that he came up big on the anniversary of the first championship. Keep in mind, the Rockets, with a 48% chance of dropping to the 18th pick, only a 27.4% chance of ending up in the top two, Stephen. So, yeah, Elijah Wan does it again, and it just seems like uh, he he's got that magic still. Maybe maybe we need to keep him around for for to do some other stuff to help us out. I don't I don't know. I don't know what else he can do to bring his luck, but we need him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, isn't that what the great players do? You know, it, even off the court, they they seem to find a way to help their team. So uh, way to go, Hakeem. You you did great, buddy. Uh, <laughs> so now you know they have the second pick. Well, now they've got to get it right, and, and regardless of what they do. You know, who, who they pick, are they even going to keep the pick? I mean, I, it sounds like all options are on the table as far as Rafael Stone is concerned with this uh, draft pick. But, boy, at least they got the number two. I I mean, I must admit, I, I was just hoping they'd be in the top four, period, because otherwise they would have dropped way down. You know, the, the only thing better than having the number two pick, obviously, would be having the number one. But, man, I'll, I'll take the number two. And, you know— the last time the Rockets had the number two pick in the draft, Robert, they drafted some guy named Rudy Tomjanovich. Tom Is that how you pronounce it? And they weren't even the the Houston Rockets then. They were still in San Diego. Well, technically, wasn't Steve Francis number two, even though he wasn't their pick? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you could put that. Yeah, it wasn't their pick, but their their own pick, yeah, that they had. But yeah, Steve Francis was, uh, you, you are correct. I mean, you can't say enough of how important this was because it, it, it might have set the franchise back a year or it could set it back the franchise several years because this is a draft where you've got so many good guys at the top and to get a top five pick is such a big deal. But Stephen, I, I do want to go back to the lottery show on ESPN because Rachel Nichols didn't seem to understand how big it was when they announced the magic at the fifth pick. She buried the lead for what seemed like eternity to me. Now, maybe it was just 20 or 30 seconds, but it, Took her a while to say the Rockets were in the top four. It took so long. I wondered, 
maybe I missed something and I got nervous all over it. Like what's going on? <laughs> yeah. I mean, these national guys, I, I just, it's so funny how when it comes to Houston teams, they just kind of leave them laying there unless you're the Astros. Of course, I guess that's the exception, but yeah, I was, was wondering, you know, when is she going to get around to that? Unless something incredibly strange happens, the Pistons will choose Cade Cunningham with the first overall pick. So here's the deal. Over the last week, the debate has started about who the Rockets should pick because there isn't really a clear-cut number two pick. And for the first time in ages, Rockets fans have kept an eye on the NBA draft boards. I've kept an eye on the NBA draft boards too. And unless you're under a rock, you know that Evan Mobley, Jalen Green, and Jalen Suggs are who all the experts have deemed to be number two. And that's where I wanted to get to you, Stephen, because do you got a preference at all, or is there somebody that you're leaning towards? Have you done any research on this yet? You know, I I have to say, Robert, the more I think about it, and yeah, I know that Cade Cunningham is, you know, what they say, the the first, probably the first pick. I mean, I've heard some things that the Pistons may actually be interested more in Jalen Green, but you know, that that's obviously neither here nor there, but the more I think about it, the more like Evan Mobley, I mean, he's not only he's, you know, seven footer, big guy, the Rockets certainly need some size, but you know, he's been compared to Christian Wood and the fact that, you know, if you put the two together, that they might actually be a great combination inside. I mean, I just, I like that possibility, you know, he, he can could possibly be a better fit, you know, if you're going to pair him with Christian Wood. Uh, you know, they've even drawn some comparisons to Chris Bosh. You know, he's got a quick, a very explosive first step. He can shoot from the perimeter. He can put the ball on the floor. I just, I don't know, the more I read about him, and I, I honestly haven't watched him play a whole lot at USC, but a uh, really interesting article, Robert, that I know you read because you sent it to me uh, on him and just how he kind of grew up. Basketball had to kind of grow on him. I'd say Evan Mobley, at least at this moment, would be the pick that I would probably choose if, if I were the one picking. First off, I got to say, I'd be excited about any of Green, Mobley, or Suggs because they all look like future all-stars. If, if yeah. we're being honest, yeah. they all appear to have incredible intangibles. They put the time in the gym. They're mentally tough. Great desire to be a fantastic player when you hear these interviews with them or read stories about them. But it, it's coming down to basically Jalen Green and Evan Mobley because like most people, I've eliminated Suggs because he's the shortest, doesn't have a big wingspan. You know, you need that today with defenses and how you switch off. And if you've got three players separated by very little the size and the length, switch defensively in today's NBA, weigh the scale in favor of Green and Mobley. Now, typically, I'm like you, Steven. I, I'm going to lean towards size. Mobley, seven feet, seven foot four wingspan. Green, just six six with a six seven wingspan. But here's where I'm going to go off the rails a little bit because in today's NBA, I got to say a couple of things about what's going on and what we're seeing. First of all, you know, that guy who's the wing player and that can score and do it in different ways is the most valuable player that you can have in today's NBA. And and that's where you got to give the advantage to Jalen green because Evan Mobley, unless he turns into Kevin Durant and maybe that's possible, but, I mean, that's super wishful thinking that he's a guy that you can just give the ball to and, hey, go get a bucket. You need that that guy that you can give the ball to and go get a bucket. And those guys are the most valuable players right now because at the end of the game, the last few minutes, 
That's what you need somebody like a Jalen Green for. And and I was just looking through his stuff, Stephen, and he can do it all offensively. I mean, already he's there. He can shoot. He can uh, do it mid-range. He can do turnaround jumpers, floaters, go to the basket. He's got it all. Yeah, he's got that athleticism, Robert, that I think appeals to a lot of people. So he he definitely has that. He's got that explosive first step. He he is a good shooter. He's, he's shown that he can shoot. It, it's the athleticism, I think, that that can get you a lot of places. So, you know, if if you're talking about it in that vein, yeah, like you said, really any one of these guys could probably it'd be hard to criticize the pick. Uh, what is he, 6'6"? And uh, he is with the G League uh, Ignite team. It's kind of interesting. But, yeah, I really like the athleticism and just the, you know, the explosiveness that he does offer uh, if you did decide to go with a Jalen Green. And here's the other thing. There's a couple of things you got to think about in, in the modern NBA. So what we're going to see this summer is all these guys that are in their third year, teams are going to try to give max extensions to the Lucas, DeAndre Ayton, uh, some of the guys that were in that draft, Trey Young. You know, all these guys that by the third year, you can do that and you can keep these guys long term and it allows you to keep these stars that you're working on and making better and and drafting into much longer term guys with the team. And the difference to me between an Evan Mobley and a Jalen Green is I think he's going to be great right out of the bat, right out of the gate, right off the bat. Jalen Green, you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, that is possible. Uh, I, I mean, really, if you're if you're talking about who might be, you know, the guy that and, and the Rockets certainly they need help quickly. So if you're talking about it in that vein, Jalen Green might well be your better guy than than something someone like Evan Mobley. Yeah, and here's another thing that you got to think about with guys being really great early in their careers. Consider this, Stephen. You want somebody that is going to be really good early because I think of the NFL with the Deshaun Watson or that quarterback that is doing great and is immediate star on his first contract. You can spend a lot of money and you can make your team really good earlier than you could otherwise. I mean, that's a big part of the equation. And I think you have to consider that these days because in the NBA, these guys want to leave so quickly. You, you've got to consider that getting that window as quickly as possible. Well, that's right. And, you know, that's another reason that I'm so glad the Rockets got in the top four and, and even the top two is that you, you it does allow you more of the luxury. You don't have to worry so much about salary cap and things like that. You, you can build some guys around whoever you pick. And if it's somebody like Jalen Green, you know, a, a lot of it is it's going to once you make that pick, then you can start thinking about, all right, what pieces can we put around him? that can not only make him better, but certainly make the Rockets better. And I'm just saying this, and I, you know, I'm just going off of the eye test and, and just watching this guy. I, I really believe, Stephen, that Jalen Green is going to be ready to be an all-star caliber player by year two or three. He's going to come into the NBA and have the potential to get you 20 on any given night, his rookie season. Evan Mobley is going to be a longer project. These guys that are seven feet tall that, you know, maybe in college, like Evan Mobley, he's had to be more of a post guy where in the NBA, he's going to be pushed outside. He's going to have to really work on his range and, and getting that NBA three going because he's going to get there with that. But it's going to take him a lot longer than Jalen. Jalen Green's already, you know, he's been doing that. He's been playing with the G League, as, as we talked about. Yeah, that is the key factor. I mean, I, I can't argue with what you're saying. 
Um, you know, here's the other possibility, Robert. And, and I mean, this is, you know, I'm sure Rafael Stone is, is considering all his options, but what if they decide to trade that second pick? I mean, all kinds of possibilities could come into that. I just don't know what you want to trade for that is going to work with your timeline because you, if you're trading the second pick, you need to start thinking about oh, we're going to trade the Brooklyn picks too and, and to package to get not just one great player, but two great players. And I, I get it. You know, somebody like, uh, Dame Lillard might be available. All of a sudden, we're hearing rumblings coming out of Portland, but he's 31 years old. And if you get go go get one of these stars that are in their late 20s or early 30s, uh, because you're trading that number two pick, then uh, you you've got to think about how, how can we get you know to be a contender immediately. So I've got to go get another star. Now, if you're trading back in the draft, you know maybe you can trade back a couple of spots and pick pick up something else. So you end up with a Jalen Suggs. Uh, potentially maybe with the fourth pick or something like that. But that that's as far as I would go back because, you know, like I said, I, I feel like all four of these guys at the top of the draft are just about guaranteed all-stars. And I don't say that often, but they're, they're all so uh, versatile already and, and have what looks to be the game to, to, to be there. That They've got that ceiling for sure. No, and it's not often you can say that. I mean, they're probably as close to can't miss as you can get. I'm not sure there really is such a thing. I, I, and, and don't get me wrong, I would not trade that second pick. I would make that second pick. I, I have a feeling what might happen is I, I do think they're probably going to trade at least one of those draft picks, you know, the 23rd, 24th, perhaps. You know, there, there is always that chance they could do that. But I, I certainly, if it were me, if I were F.L. Stone, I would take keep that second pick and build around that because as you said you know the rockets need instant help and and one of these guys is bound to help them whichever one it ends up being so i would certainly keep that second pick and maybe make one in the in the later round whether either to move up a little bit higher and make another pick or just to see what kind of a package you can get for one of those if anything if the right guy is out there maybe i package some of the brooklyn picks or the other first round picks that the rockets have acquired and go out and get a really good player to put next to Jalen Green and Christian Wood, and maybe you think the timeline moves up a little bit. But that's what I would do with with that, as opposed to giving up on a, on a Jalen Green, Evan Mobley type guy at, at the at the number two. Well, it's something to think about, and you know, obviously the Rockets have options. I mean, that's a good thing when you have a pick like that. They have some options to play with, but let's hope, yeah, that they keep that second pick, and maybe in the later rounds, if if they're going to make a deal, do it there. Yeah, we're going to get into much more about where the Rockets go with this pick. Uh, we have we might have some other ideas as it goes along, but that's kind of where I am right now, and it'll be interesting to see how this this plays out in the next few weeks. Um, want to talk a little bit, Stephen, about the NBA semifinals because uh, I, I feel like Phoenix is still the favorite to win this series, but uh, the Clippers just they, they will not die. The, the the thing that I want to talk to you most about is I'm watching the Hawks and the Bucks, and unfortunately, you know, the the Hawks may have a a, a, a Trey Young that's not the same guy. It looks like he's going to be hurt, and if he is, then I don't think there's any way that the Hawks win. But I, I was frustrated because I'm watching, and Clint Capella, our old friend's trying to guard Giannis, and unlike Blake Griffin, he's out there trying to cover Giannis at, at, at mid-range, at the three-point line, and somebody needs to tell Clint Capella that there is no need to do that. What what Blake Griffin was doing with him 
in the previous round was much better. And I was just kind of disappointed because Capella's been around for a while. And I, I just feel like that was a big part of the series. They were they were given uh, Giannis some benefit of the doubt, and then Capella gets blown by some of the time. Now, the series really comes down to Chris Middleton, it seems like, because if he shoots well, then Milwaukee wins games just like in the previous round and throughout the playoffs. But uh, Capella, man, he's got to know better than that. Well, you know, and it feels like there was some of that when Capella was with the Rockets. I mean, he, you know, we could see him developing and we kept thinking, you know, his ceiling was so high and and he got to a point where it, it's almost like he topped out. And in, in situations like this, Robert, I think, you know, this is where you kind of go, maybe that's what's keeping Clint Capella from taking that next step into its stardom. I don't know that we really expected that when he was with the Rockets, but yeah, in that situation, he, he's got to be more aggressive. You're going to take out somebody like Giannis, you, you've got to do better than that. Not more aggressive. He needs to be less aggressive. I mean, that's the problem. You can't go out to the three-point line and guard a guy that can't shoot threes. You can't go out to 18 feet and, sh- and guard a guy that can't, you know, shoot from 18 feet. I mean, that that's where my frustration is with Capella is, like, he should know better at this point. And I think it, what it did was it made Giannis really frustrated when Blake Griffin was, was doing that because he's thinking – okay, what do I do now? How do I get by? But you just can't leave me here wide open. And Blake Griffin also did a great job of moving his feet uh, and made it hard for Giannis to just take those two steps that he does to the basket where he just kind of walks around you with his super long legs. He did a great job of with position and all that kind of thing. But I, like I said, I don't think it's going to matter. It looks like, you know, I, I really felt like the Hawks had a good chance of winning this series. But with, with Trey Young, not at his best. Now it just it, it seems like it's almost impossible, and it it feels like we're we're dead on heading to that uh, Suns Bucks finals. Although, you know, I get, I guess you just can't count this Clippers teams out because they they just don't want to die. No, the Clippers are they are scrappy. You got to give them credit. They they're going to hang in there. Um, and it just getting back to the Hawks and Bucks though. I just wonder, you know, how much game film has Clint Capella watched on guarding Giannis because. It, it's obvious if you can see that, if that's what's working, you want to keep using that, right? Yeah, maybe he didn't watch the previous series. Maybe <laughs> he just doesn't feel like he can do it the same way that Blake Griffith w- was doing. And Blake Griffin did a, just a fantastic job on Giannis. And I, I, I just felt like it frustrated Giannis as much as just made him shoot those shots that you want Milwaukee to shoot. You would rather him shoot mid to long distance shots as opposed to him being in the paint or him thinking, oh, I can go past the ball. And and what it does when you let him make a run at the basket is even if he doesn't score a basket, a lot of times it forces other guys to come over and double team, which then opens up uh, passing lanes for him to get it to the other players, and, and you get more wide-open threes if you're Milwaukee. But I, I just had to bring up Capella because – you know, he's a former Rocket, so I had, to, I had to do that. Well, I'm just glad that – well, I don't know if glad is the right word. I know we talked about this before, but it's it's at least good to have some former Rockets to watch. If the Rockets aren't going to be in the playoffs, I might as well watch some former Rockets and see how they do. But, yeah, I just – I know there were certain frustrations that I had with Clint Capella in, in just the way he would guard people and just and, – and it's showing up again in this series. But, man, regardless of who's going to make the finals, Robert – it sure is going to be intriguing when it does happen. Well, we get to see Chris Paul potentially facing his old friend, PJ Tucker, if it plays out like I think oh. a lot of us uh, yeah. think it will. And speaking of former Houston big time people uh, in, in, in the Houston sports market, 
that horrible cheater, AJ Hinch. He's killing the Astros, man. <laughs> uh, yes. Five and two is the Detroit Tigers record against the Astros this year. I believe that's the last game that they've had to play against them. Um, I'm wondering, has the Hinch hex taken effect, Robert? He seems to have the book on the Astros, at least from a hitting standpoint. He, he put the Astros back into a slump. Nobody could put the Astros into a, into a hitting slump <laughs> except A.J. Hinch, apparently. Yeah, A.J. Hinch. Go figure. Yeah, I mean, if anybody would know the Astros, I guess it would be him um, after managing him all those years. So, yeah, I mean, you knew that the Astros offense couldn't possibly keep up that kind of pace, although – it's always disappointing, Robert, when, when they do come back down to earth. You want it to last forever. You want it to keep going. But it just wouldn't have thought it would be against the Detroit Tigers. And then, you know, they, they run into the Baltimore Orioles, whom they handled so easily last week. And it's, you know, pretty much the same old, same old. Uh, you know, two for 13, with uh, thir- stranded like uh, 10 runners on base. And the bullpen did its usual bullpen stuff and didn't come through. So... You know, you you try not to get too up or too down about this sort of thing, Robert, just because it's such a long season. But I have to hope the Astros haven't peaked too soon, you know, that they can make another run by the time it gets toward the end of the season and go into the playoffs with some momentum. But, you know, I mean, they're still in a great position. They're in first place. They're they're doing certainly better than they were a few weeks ago. But again, just it's sometimes you just can't mask those weaknesses that are there, that being the bullpen. And then the offense kind of regressing back to the mean the way it has past couple games. The one guy that A.J. Hinch couldn't stop, the unstoppable, the great hitter, Miles Straw. <laughs> yeah, and do we think we would be saying that a few weeks ago? I mean, we know we, you sometimes have to give these guys a chance to kind of figure it out. And, and Miles Straw has certainly done that. I mean, what, he, he's been hitting. I, I just I can't believe he, he's even you know, getting some extra base hits and he, you know, what, what I'm really excited about Robert is he, he's playing so much better defensively now, you know, and even guys like Chaz McCormick starting to figure it out on a, on the defensive end as well as hitting. So, you know, that, that's been one of the, the bright spots of the Astros. And one of the reasons their offense has been clicking so much is not only are you getting contributions from the guys you're supposed to, but from the guys you didn't think you could count on like Miles Straw. All right, let's let's address the bullpen a little bit because if you're the Astros, I don't know. It's time to get rid of the Belax and the Garzas. And this week, Austin Pruitt pitched his first game in Sugarland. Numbers not inspiring. Point one innings, two hits, three earned runs, one walk, one strikeout. So that's not good. But Josh James pitched a game at Single A Fayetteville, one inning, one hit, no runs, one walk, one strikeout. Uh, that's something. Brian Abreu, one game in Double A Corpus, one inning, no hits, no runs, no walks, two strikeouts. So, Stephen, I, I don't know if any of these guys can be a help, but man, I'm tired of the Belak and Garza experiment. I mean, we were talking with some guys that maybe Sugarlands got with Gerald uh, a few days ago on the podcast, and I- I- I'm willing to give anybody else a shot because I, I just don't want to see Belak and Garza anymore. Well, you know, what's funny is that Belak, you know, he had that one good inning in Baltimore on Monday night or, or against Baltimore. If he had come out and pitched a better second inning, you wouldn't have seen Garza. Baker would have probably left him in there. I couldn't help but think when I was listening to your interview with Gerald, hey, why don't we just swap the Sugarland bullpen for the Astros bullpen? I mean, <laughs> Sugarland's bullpen, what is it, the best in uh, the West? Uh, the Astros certainly are not, but... Yeah, you know, with some of these guys, as far as like Austin Pruitt, he's been out for such a long time. 
I, I just don't know, you know, that we could really expect anything from him this year. You know, we, we keep hoping Pedro Baez can come back. I don't see him coming back in the near future. It, it may be somebody like a Brian Abreu who's been more recent. You know, maybe Josh James. He was one of those guys, kind of like Framber Valdez. You kept waiting for him and waiting for him to figure it out. He finally did. I, I don't know if Josh James can do it, but, man, somebody's got to step up or else you've got to do something at the trade deadline, certainly to shore up this bullpen. You know, I said a couple of weeks ago how difficult it would be to trade Jake Odorizzi and get the high-end, eighth-inning, incredible setup guy that the Astros actually need. But I came up with an idea, and I wanted to see what you think because, you know, the only teams who'd be interested in Odorizzi, you would think, are contenders who need a starter and wouldn't be willing to give up their current high-end relievers. But what if you traded Anoli Paredes and another minor league prospect to a bad team needing to rebuild, they might actually want to exchange for a potential big arm with a bunch of arbitration years ahead of them. So from a financial basis, it would work for a rebuilding team. You would give up Anoli Paredes, but once you take that big arm that they have who's within that one or two years of free agency, you solve the problem for this year, and then you could actually do this in combo with trading Odorizzi to an NL team in contention and ask for a big-armed minor league reliever who could potentially be Anoli down the road. So kind of replace Anoli, but meanwhile, get that guy that can do it right now and, and be an immediate help in that seventh or eighth inning. You know, just somebody that at least pushes Orion Stanek back a little bit as to a sixth or seventh inning guy. So you're not depending on Ryan Stanek, who I, I just don't believe much in. And it also just – it it, it – really strengthens the team as a whole. Well, that's an intriguing thought. I, of course, you'd have to get Anoli Paredes healthy first. I mean, that would be the big thing. Uh, I know I think he pitched off a mound recently. He's trying to come back from something. So, you know, that that might be the uh, – that might be you put the brakes on it somewhat. But, I, I mean, you know, the Astros do have some arms in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, Gerald talked about a lot of them in Sugarland that, you know, you could possibly give up. And, and the, the thing about Odorizzi, it's not that far-fetched. You know, it just kind of makes you wonder. I know that Dusty Baker, you know, he, he kind of committed to going with him and Christian Javier kind of in that back-to-back situation just because the Astros have so many starters. But you kind of wondered, you, you thought maybe Jake Odorizzi would, he, he's been pitching better of late, so maybe leave him in a little bit longer. Dusty Baker hasn't seemed to want to do that. But a guy like Odorizzi, you know, maybe for a, a, a younger guy that, that has more potential down the road, it might be a possibility that you would have to consider, certainly. Yeah, you know, one thing that happened with Odorizzi the other day is he only goes five or six innings, or I think it was five innings in Detroit. So you pitch a ton of your bullpen, which means in the Baltimore game, when Granke falters, you, you're pitching a lot of your bullpen. When you're pitching a lot of your bullpen, the Astros are obviously bad at this point. And the issue is with some of these guys, I, I've heard Brent Strom say that, you know, they might knock an inning off of these guys as the season goes on because some of them are in jeopardy with not having pitched this many innings before of potentially hurting their arm or running out of gas as the year goes on. And and that becomes a bigger and bigger concern. And with somebody like uh, Jake Odorizzi, you know, somebody he's got to be able to go longer into a game. And I don't know if that was about hey, we saw something where he was struggling and it was time to get him out. 
or we're trying to limit him a little bit because he's still coming back from the injury or something like that. But the Astros can't afford that with, with how bad their bullpen is. No, I, well, I think it was a little of both. And then you got to throw Luis Garcia in the mix, you know, and I know you even said it on a previous podcast, Robert, you know, he's, he's not used to pitching that many innings in a season. So you're going to have to start keeping an eye on that as well. And that's, I mean, I just think that's where the Astros are really going to, they're going to have to figure it out sooner rather than later, because as you go deeper into the season, you know, if they're going to keep up the momentum that they have, the offense can't bail them out all the time. They've, they've got to figure it out with the bullpen. And then you've got to figure out your starters. You know, how far do you want them to go? Whether it's one of the young guys or whether it's somebody like Jake Odorizzi, who's still, you know, coming back, he, he didn't have a spring training really. Then he had the injury. So just a, a lot of things to consider. And that's why I just think you're, you're going to have to see some moves here pretty soon around the trade deadline that, that maybe can answer some of these questions. And at, at the very least, you know, get some stop uh, stopgap measures going here. Yeah, the other part about it is, you know, Odorizzi, if you le- let him go, somebody goes down, you move Christian Javier back in, or if somebody gets some rest, you have Christian Javier. And frankly, I- I'm a little concerned that Javier just isn't getting enough innings right now. We saw him struggle with the strike zone in his last outing, and it's it's where they're pitching him. It's just, it's so few and far between now maybe it's going to pick up a little bit as maybe the starters aren't doing as well they're not as in, in as good a stretch but I don't I don't like this only pitching Javier two or three innings every five or six days I, I just don't think that's good for him and he's somebody that I I really feel like you're going to need in the playoffs and maybe you'll need him to pitch a, a few more innings than he's doing right now or at least more frequently than he's doing right now well I think the biggest problem with Christian Javier from the very beginning has been his endurance. You know, he just hasn't shown that he can go deep into games. And and that's something that really the Astros are going to have to figure it out from a lot of these guys. And that's, it's going to be harder to hide the bullpen weaknesses under a bushel as the season goes along. So, you know, with, with Christian Javier, I, I think that's just been the big deal is being able to go deep into games, but it's something that, you know, Dusty Baker even said the other day, more of these guys are going to have to step up. You you can't rely on just Ryan Stanek and Ryan Presley. They weren't even available on Monday because you used them on Sunday. So all of these guys are going to have to step up and just get the job done as well as go deeper into games if you're going to be able to get through all this bullpen mess. Yeah, it just seemed like the more things change, the more they stay the same with the Astros. It's, we're <laughs> going to be talking about the bullpen all year. I wanted to ask you one quick thing about this uh, checking pitchers for illegal substance substances because you know that's been something we haven't gotten into a ton yet but it's it's a big deal that's happened around baseball our old friend Garrett Cole's in a little bit of trouble without the uh spider tack you might want to say uh our old enemy Trevor Bauer is having some issues with it and the big numbers Stephen are that since June 3rd spin rates at their lowest levels in six years, this is as of just like three or four days ago, it's, it's helped the offense because in the first three weeks of the new rule, teams averaging 0.23 more runs per game, batting averages up eight points, OPS up 23 points, strikeouts are down. So it's uh, it's changing things really quickly. Well, isn't it, isn't it something how, you know, Major League Baseball, it's like they turn a blind eye to things like this. You know, they did the same thing with the steroids issue. And then when somebody finally brought it into the light, then they decide to dig in and do something about it. And, and of course, it's ticking the pitchers off, naturally. Uh, I, I think it's funny. Somebody like uh, 
you know, Trevor Bauer, for instance, who was, was talking so much smack about how the Astros were doing this and doing that, when all along he's doing the same thing. You know, baseball has just had so many black eyes, and rightfully so, about the way they've handled things. I mean, I guess it's better late than never, but, you know, now they're they're having to deal with this. It's something that has been going on. For, I mean, it's been going on forever. Pitchers have always... We've, we talked about Gaylord Perry in the 70s and, you know, name a whole bunch of other pitchers who are doing things like this. But all of a sudden, now they're going to dig their heels in and uh, take care of this. And, yeah, it is making a difference. Um, but for baseball... They want the hitters to hit more. You know, they want less strikeouts. They they need more runs if they're going to keep the fan interest. So that's really where it is <laughs> as far as the spider tack and illegal substances controversy is going. They say that Garrett Cole's spin rates are back to the levels when he was in Pittsburgh. So I, I'm surprised that I haven't heard more, hey, look, it's the Astros' fault that's turned Garrett Cole into this. But, you know, now the Yankees are stuck with the bill on this and you know what? The Astros get the last laugh. And look, the one thing about all of this uh, deal with the Astros and pointing fingers at the Astros, it reminds me of the old thing, Stephen. Remember, if if you're pointing your finger at somebody, there's four fingers pointing back at you or three fingers pointing back at you. And everybody in baseball that was pointing their finger at the Astros, they're now all reaping the repercussions of this because if you're going to start going after cheating around baseball, then let's do it. And, and you start going after stuff that they're doing at the plate, then you got to go after pitching. And this pitching stuff has been going on for ages and they've just never done anything about it. And I just am laughing because, you know, this is exactly what I, I thought should happen. It's like, if you're going to go after cheating, let, then let's do this in baseball. Let's do it. Well, absolutely. And here's the thing, Robert. And I think I even said this about the time that, that all of this came out with the Astros cheating scandal. You can't tell me that, there is, that they are the only team who was doing that. And they weren't. You know, it, it's but it's all about how you handle it. And you're just going to make an example of one team and not punish others the same way. Well, it's the same way with this. Yeah, you've, you've got to start cleaning it up everywhere and quit pointing your finger at one team and saying, oh, they've got to be the only team that are doing this. We hate you. Well, yeah, as far as Garrett Cole is concerned, I think you just hit the nail on the head. He's with the Yankees right now, and the Yankees are so coveted that, uh, yeah, they're, they're not going to say much about that. So, yeah, but it, but you're right. They, they've got to do it all over the game, and it's about time that some of these dominoes start falling. Any other baseball news out there that caught your eye this week before we move on? Well, I know you had seen this article, and, and I read it too in uh, USA Today, you know, we talk a lot about how, you know, during the COVID, you know, 2020 season, how the broadcasters were not able to travel with the team, you know, when they were on the road. And, and even now it's kind of be that way with the TV broadcasters and even a lot of the radio broadcasters. They're not getting the same access that they once did, especially when it comes to traveling on the road. You know, their seats on the plane, you know, the, the team, of course, would always fly them to the road games. They're being taken up by their analytics department and other team personnel. You know, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine. I'd like to talk to some of the broadcasters, but it's got to be more difficult to call the games because really you're on the same access level as the fan watching from home, you know, and yeah, they do have Zoom conference calls with press conferences and things like that to get that kind of access. But yeah, I thought it was real interesting how, you know, even though fans are coming back in the stands in most cases, at full capacity, teams just aren't exactly ready to uh, let their broadcasters travel with them. And 
you know, I just, I, in some cases, that may be permanent, even though, you know, COVID is it's not over yet, but things are slowly getting back to normal. So that was, that was something interesting that caught my eye this week. Yeah, this whole idea that uh, we can't afford team, you know, guy, we, we don't want to pay the money, I should say, for guys that are going on road trips and broadcasters that are going on road trips. I mean, th- th- these are teams that pay a million dollars to a guy at the back of the bench. You know, they're spending money hand over fist on so many different things. And it just feels like a nickel and diming of your business model because, you know, the fan experience for this sport, for these sports is the biggest part. You, you've got to engage the fans. And when guys can't go to the ballparks, they're not giving you the best experience as a fan because they're not getting to know players. They're not getting to talk to them, which is one of the things that they can do when they're on these road trips with players. And the other part about it is like a Julia Morales at the ballpark. The, the, it, it's a fun part of road games is seeing Julius, Julia Morales in the stands and discovering, you know, whatever the ballpark food or talking to Astros fans that are on the road, you know, giving them a little bit of shine if they're traveling with the team or something like what, whatever it is uh, that that part of the experience of watching the baseball game. And look, most people experience the Astros through watching the games. They don't experience necessarily through going at the ballparks. I mean, a lot more people watch games than are at the ballparks on a regular basis. So, I mean, if, if you're nickel and diming that aspect, it just it, it to me, it makes no sense. It's like you and I, I think I can't remember if we've talked about it on the show, but I know we've talked about it, about how, you know, they're, they're making uh, the, the TV and radio guys, the same broadcast group, which, you know, ruins ruins the experience for anybody that's that is trying to listen to the radio or television because calling games with both is is. is it's not good. It's it's a bad experience from from both sides. You're taken away from a little bit from both things. I agree with you. Unfortunately, I think you're seeing this across just about every industry. I mean, I think some of these changes that were forced into effect during COVID are going to become more permanent. You know, you're seeing more people working from home in other industries than you used to, and I think it's the same way in sports. I think these teams, you know, they they always want to cut costs. I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah, I agree. And more people are watching the games than going to the ballpark. But believe me, these owners want people in the stands, and, and they're not going to care as much about, oh, well, the media's not traveling with the teams anymore as they are about you know trying to widen their profit margin and get people back in the seats. That's really what it is about for them. But you're right. You know, when the whole sideline reporter thing has become a thing, it, as much of watching a part of a game and entertaining as the game itself or even the play-by-play announcers. So, now I agree with you. I, I think it's unfortunate. We just have to hope that you know, it doesn't go that way permanently all across the board, but I just think you're going to see some teams doing that. And it's good that we know we have the technology to do this because there are circumstances where, hey, it might help that we have this potential because of whatever comes up, whether it's a guy that's sick. You know, I, I would rather hear Todd Callis at a big game in September uh, as opposed to somebody else if, say, Todd Callis has the flu and he can't make a road trip. So, you know, you leave the broadcast team back home in Houston, let him take care of himself, and he's not on the plane and getting other people sick or something like that, but you still get the Todd Callis experience. Maybe that that's where it's an advantage. And there are, are circumstances where I think, hey, this is good that we know that we can do this, but on a regular basis, it just seems like for multi-millions of dollars that you're spending, hundreds of million dollars that these teams spend on all this different stuff, that it's really a nickel-dime situation of putting a guy up in a hotel. Because the broadcast teams, typically, they're on the flights with the players. You know, it's not like they're they're uh, they're paying for a, them to take a separate flight. They're they're using the same 
gas on the plane that the plane they're typically on those flights from what i understand anyway well yeah it's not so much that they're saving them they're they're replacing them with their own personnel you know like i said earlier i think some of the analytics crew gets to go to these games you know and and some of the other front office people behind the scenes that you know that personnel they're the ones taking the places of uh, the seats on the plane and uh, you know and other things that the the writers and broadcasters used to so i think a lot of it is just a matter of preference they want more of their front office people to be at these games and they're going to sacrifice the media to do that that that's what kind of stuck out to me about it all right well let's end this show with some positive stuff and i i have to talk about the Olympic trials, if we're going to talk positivity over the last week and nothing gets me more excited than the Olympics. I don't know how everybody else is out there, but you know, I watched a ton of the trials this weekend, both gymnastics and track, and it's always emotional, but Steven, I think with everything we've experienced in the last year, I saw more tears than usual. And that was just in my living room, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It, it definitely is going to mean more, Robert you know, just because of the layoff and, you know, I'm even working on a story uh, as a freelance journalist, I'm even working on a story about how Olympic athletes trained during the pandemic and some of the creative ways, you know, that they had to come up with, you know, you think about baseball, football, and basketball players and, uh, you know, how they could still train on their own. But, you know, in some of these sports like gymnastics, unless you have a, you know, a pommel horse in your backyard or rings or, you know, if you're an Olympic swimmer, if, unless you have an Olympic-sized pool in your backyard, you know, it's awfully hard to train. And so I think it, it just it, – it certainly means a lot no matter what. But it means more now just because the Olympics were delayed a year. And, yeah, I, I think that the trials meant more, not just to the athletes, but to people like you and me, Robert, just being able to watch them. And, and the fact that we are going to have an Olympics this year, yeah, it just means so much more to, to everybody. Simone Biles, must-watch TV, Simone Biles. She wasn't as sharp as she usually is, but it might be a good thing. Number one, Stephen, I think it's going to refocus her for Tokyo. And number two, it gets a bad performance out of the way because obviously she's human. And so you'd rather her make the mistakes at the trials. I can't imagine how hard it would be for her to be just perfect in several different big competitions in a matter of months. That's, that's a lot to ask. Well, it is. And, and honestly, Robert, I think, and, and this is another aspect of the story I'm working on is, you, you know, th these guys have had to stop training and start it again. Their timing is off. And, and even, you know, as, as superhuman as Simone Biles is, uh, you know, it, it's affected her too. It's affected the way they've trained. You know, it takes time to get back to peak performance. And if you rush it, then you're going to, you're certainly going to risk injury and things like that. So yeah, I think, if it was a time for her to do that, it would be at the Olympic trials. She can go back and refocus, still have a little time to work it out before the Olympics start next month. So, and the thing is, and we said this, I think on the last podcast, you know, even when Biles, uh, Simone Biles is not her best, she still far out distances the competition in most cases. So I'm not too worried about it. I certainly am pulling forward to win some more golds because this is probably going to be it for her. So yeah, you have to hope that, She'll get her timing back completely, come back, be totally focused. And when Tokyo gets here, she'll do her thing like she's always done. And how about the Biles slash Childs of Houston fame? Because it was Jordan Childs, another major Houston story. She's training with Simone and in her gigantic shadow, she looked fantastic. So we've got two gymnasts training down the street, headed to Tokyo. 
Lydia Jacoby, who's just 17 years old. You might have heard this name, Stephen, because she's going to UT in the fall, and she's going to be in the 100-meter breaststroke. You got Ginny Fuchs out of Episcopal, made the women's boxing team. Raven Rogers, who went to Kincaid, qualified for the 800 meters. Uh, in swimming, the great Simone Manuel won the 50 free, th- 50 free, so she's going back in that event. Um, we have an Olympic fencer named Anna Van Brummen, who went to Audi International for high school, which is just down the street from me. And hey, it's been under the radar, but Cy Springs and UT softball legend Kat Osterman coming out of retirement for the return of softball in the Olympics. I know you got to be excited about that one. Yeah, I am because I cover softball. Um, and it's good, you know, because softball is one of those, it, it, it's not been an Olympic sport for a few years. A lot of it has to do with the host country. And of course, Japan being big in baseball, you know, they're, they're going to have baseball for the Olympics and softball. So yeah, lots of local people to cheer for. I mean, if you're, you, you cheer for the big names, obviously, but I'm always for cheering, you know, for the Houston area people or the, you know, the Texas people. So you got plenty to choose from in that realm. Yeah, I said Raven Rogers 800 meters. I, I meant to say that was in track, not swimming. Uh, also, we've got a couple of amazing non-Houston stories in Olympic track. Javon Harrison, who won the NCAA title at LSU in long jump and high jump, became the first American since Jim Thorpe to qualify for the Olympics in both of those events. When you get mentioned in the same breath as Jim Thorpe, that's massive. That's massive. Yeah, you got something there. I mean, a lot of people may not remember Jim Thorpe, but let me tell you, he's one of the biggest names of all time, one of the greatest athletes of all time. You still have to put him in that conversation. You know, and you're talking about 17-year-olds, Robert, and there's another guy named Arian Knighton who broke Usain Bolt's record in the 200-meter. He's another guy to keep an eye on, and this is a guy that he didn't even take up track and field until he was a freshman in high school, and now he's a senior and he's already going to the Olympics. I mean, that's pretty incredible. So, I mean, that's the thing about the Olympics. There are so many incredible stories to watch, and we probably haven't even scratched the surface. You know, once you get to Tokyo, you're going to start hearing some other surprise stories, you know, that are coming out about some of these athletes. So, yeah, lots to look forward to coming up in July with the Olympics. Yeah, and just to put a capper on your story about Knighton, who qualified for the 200 meters third best time in that event of the Americans, he is the youngest American track Olympian since the legendary Jim Ryan in 1972. If you're in the same breath as Jim Ryan, just like Thorpe, it's a big deal. And Jim Ryan, actually, for those who don't remember him, last American to hold the world record in the mile. He was a huge deal in your youth, right, Stephen? Big deal. Uh, yeah, he certainly was. You, you know, if you grew up when I did, and I know you're a little bit younger than me, Robert, but not that much, you, you certainly know who Jim Ryan is. So, yeah, Arian Knighton in great company, you know, breaking Usain Bolt's record and uh, Jim Ryan. So, yeah, some, some great things to look forward to, as I said. And going back to Kat Osterman for a second, she's now 38 years old. And one thing that we've seen, Stephen, from this year in sports, it's the sports fountain of youth. You know, we saw it with Brady. We saw it with Phil Mickelson. So Kat Osterman throwed her hat into that ring. I just can't believe Kat Osterman is 38 years old. I just, I mean, honestly, I mean, I wasn't following softball as closely when she was here at UT as I am now, but I certainly followed her. And I just, I mean, 38, I, I just, that really blows my mind, but you're right. And the fact that she's, you know, coming back with this, of course, she's been competing, you know, even last year during COVID, 
they had this uh, Athletes Unlimited League and softball, you know, where uh, the players basically ran the teams. Kat Osterman had her own team, and they ended up winning the league championship. So it's not like she's been, you know, sidelined for a few years. Uh, so, you know, but but still, the fact that she's 38 and coming back, great story. I can't wait to watch that. She's a sweetheart, too. I got a chance to interview her back in the early aughts, I guess is what you're calling the early 2000s. Uh, yeah. But I got yeah. a chance to talk to her and just one of the nicest people you would want to meet and just, a, you know, one of the all-time greats in softball for sure. And uh, let's wrap it up and remind everybody that we're on Twitter and Facebook. You can reach us there. Email info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. Until next time, stay healthy and safe, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.